You're listening to keynote speeches from our Melbourne Podcasters live event series. Recorded at the event live and featuring the best podcast professionals in the country who reveal the craft and techniques of creating a successful show. I'm Adam Jaffrey, Strategy Director at Wavelength Creative. We run the events and produce the show you're listening to right now. Today's topic is the craft of storytelling in podcasts. Featuring our keynote speaker, Anna Priestland, who's a researcher and story writer at the award-winning podcast, Case File. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Melbourne Podcasters Meetup, our November edition. How are we all? Before we start, I want to play just a little clip from Case File um, because it'll set the scene for what the show is about. And then, uh, and then I want to ask Anna kind of how it's put together. The following morning, July 18, 2009, Min's sister, Kathy Lynn, and her husband, Robert Z, were up early. Their home was close by to Min and Lily, just over the park. Robert had been up early cleaning his garage. While he was doing that, Kathy received a phone call. Min and Lily's news agency hadn't been opened that morning. The news agency was always open on time, especially on Saturdays, the busiest morning on the shopping strip. People were standing out the front of the news agency staring at a huge pile of papers still bundled on the footpath, and when they tried the door, it was locked. Immediately fearing something was wrong, Kathy and Robert went straight over to Min and Lily's house. They assumed they were either sick or maybe one of the boys had hurt themselves. When they arrived, they found the front door unlocked. Robert and Kathy entered the house and called out, but no one responded. They slowly made their way up the stairs. Kathy opened her brother and sister-in-law's bedroom door located to the right at the top of the stairs. Robert was following close behind. All they saw was red. All right, so that's a bit of a cliffhanger and a really nice, uh, a really nice piece of audio to set the scene about what Case File is about, and also how to kind of build tension. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But um, before we get started, and I wanted to ask you about how you got into this role because you're a storyteller by heart, um, and that's what you're doing right now at Case File. But you had a really successful career in fashion, and uh, I want to ask you how you went from this crazy career as a successful fashion designer to somebody who writes about murder for a living. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. I have worked in fashion for about 18 years, Um, but before I did even study fashion design, I studied what was then known as police studies, so I wanted to do forensics um, and get into that side of investigation work. Um, And at 17, I did that and realised that I didn't have the stomach for it. I also realised that I was probably too young to decide that was my path. So I did my next passion and that's what I did for a long time. I also worked in London for 10 or 12 years and went back to study criminology just as an interest because it was something that never, you know, left me. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with it and um, just did it really as a hobby. Then last year I was just at a point in my career um, I had a couple of kids been back at work working for a big brand and just thought I actually could maybe make a go and just see if I could um, 
I don't know, make a go of doing something like um, writing for someone. So I contacted the host because I was a listener. I'd been a listener of the show since um, the very beginning. So the show's been around since January of last year, so coming up to two years. And I contacted him nine months in and it just happened to be at a time of the podcast where he really needed someone. So I think it was just um, a lucky time as well. So it might be a good point actually here to just touch on the host of Case File is called Anonymous. Correct. <laughs> so, so who is it? He's Anonymous. <laughs> he started the podcast just for something to do. He had an interest in it. Um, he had an injury, he, had, he was looking at three months at home, um, wanted to occupy himself and um, just thought that he'd give it a go. He saw a space that um, he thought he could fill and that was with a true crime podcast that was entirely fact-based, that had no opinions and no um, chit-chat and just sort of an Australian version of that as well and it took off. So um, he kept anonymous just really to keep himself out of the out of the story and it stayed that way so he's you know just not letting anything stand in between the story and you know that these things that happen to people and the victims and the people left and how the audience feels about that and the actual story itself so yeah so let's talk about story um i want to understand how you put that kind of a story, like the one we just listened to together. Now that was kind of one and a half minutes out of what is sometimes a 45 minute or an hour episode. But talk me through the process of actually creating an episode of Case File. What does that look like? Um, well, it does start with me, or we do have two other freelance researchers and writers, but in my case, it starts with um, me and I choose the story I'm going to do um, either based on like listeners' requests, we get a lot of um, requests for stories, but I need to feel something about it. So it, there needs to be a reason to tell a story. We don't do episodes just because it's the worst story someone's ever heard. There needs to be something, some human interest or a terrific investigation or just something about it that makes it a bit more important to tell. I go in and the first thing that I, I do because... This type of storytelling is probably a lot different to, you know, what most people read in fiction books and stuff because everything is based on fact. There's no nothing in the story that has been made up. Whether we say how someone felt in that moment, that's because that's how they felt and we have to sort of back that up. So I start with the biggest list of facts, especially for an episode that goes for two hours. Um, my list of facts is pretty long. <laughs> And then I build around that. So how do you choose which facts to actually include? Because, you know, if you have like 40, 100 pages of information and police records and that, you know, you obviously can't include all of that. And some of it is tangential to the story and some of it is, you know, the crux of it. And some of it is important but maybe distracting. So how do you figure out which facts to include? I actually do start with everything. So we do edit quite a bit out and there is a process that I go through where I send the host my script and he will do an edit and send it back and maybe I'll do one. Might highlight some things that maybe we don't need to add in that are maybe superfluous. But the main thing is telling the story and engaging the listener enough. So the facts that we present have to be part of the storytelling so say in that clip that we just heard then um, for example the newspapers bundled up at the front of the news agency is actually what happened so that might have been a fact in a 
tiny local newspaper at the very end of the article. But for a listener who doesn't have a visual cue from like a, you know, if you think about documentaries and stuff, you open with a scene, you don't need to explain what that is, then that's a really important um, f- fact to include. So I guess I sort of end up at that point. So, so you take a list of facts and then what do you actually do with them all, right? Because <laughs> it's great to have all this stuff, but what do you do next? Well, that's about building the story. Yeah. So we, we do do a lot of, or most of our stories in chronological order um, because that's how it happened. So whether it's the investigation or whether it's, um, you know, the times that the family were finding out about stuff, we try to keep true to that because that's all part of the truth, you know, as well. But really, it's about finding the parts of the story that, um, you know, say in an investigation, there's certain times where they might find, you know, a clincher or or something that really tells them that someone's guilty or that they've got this piece of evidence that they can arrest someone, then that's a really important point to put in. And so then we can map out the story in that way and use those points to kind of keep the listener engaged and waiting for the next thing. And so how do you decide which of those facts are actually compelling and are crux to the story? Um, I don't know. (laughs) I think that's probably a question I cannot answer. I think it's probably from how I would want to hear the story and I also, you know, do a lot of reading and stuff and I guess doing true crime storytelling is a bit of a mixture between non-fiction and fiction writing. So I take the facts of non-fiction and the like ethics of nonfiction as well, but mix that with kind of the the way fiction stories are written. So, you know, keeping the listener engaged, I guess, is the most important thing. I like that putting yourself kind of in the listener's position and, yeah. and saying, how would I want to interpret this story and how would I want to hear it? So that's that's really nice. And that helps me answer as well whether something's confusing or. I sort of think, well, if I'm listening to this and I don't know the the case as well as, like, I do, how would I want that explained or what information is necessary? We had a question down the front. Do you have a limit in terms of running time or even a time that you're aiming for? We don't. In the very beginning of the podcast, so say the first maybe 10 or 15 episodes, they were around 30 minutes. And it slowly became about what the listener likes and we listen to the listeners and we still do now and we take a lot of cues from them and what they enjoy. And that's just something that is really um, based on that, that they love the longer in-depth stories. So now we just do however long it takes to tell that story. So I'll write some that are around an hour, but I've also done a lot that are two to three hours. And then one that was supposed to be a couple of episodes became five. How do you take the list of facts and turn it into a story arc um, or, you know, the cliffhangers or like which, how do you decide which parts of that, uh, those lists of facts actually turn into the final product? Um, It's probably a bit different to um, regular story writing where you concentrate on those conflicts and the character and who's bought in where and all of that sort of stuff. I really let those facts tell the story. So you'll find that in an investigation, um, like a police investigation, those moments happen naturally. So there has to be a point where something big happens. And so we kind of follow that and we try to give the listener that same feeling that the police say in that example, a feeling at the time. So we let that guide us as opposed to following a method. 
So that's the same with, uh, I mean, I don't, lots of my stories I open with uh, the area, you know, like where it's set, the scene and all of that sort of stuff. But there might be some which need to open with a search or, a, you know, the incident itself. It's kind of just something that changes every time. And I think if we did have a formula, um, we would get a bit stale. I want to ask actually, um, which, so, so you, you talked about um, uh, fiction books, right? And fiction stories. I want to ask about, you know, which elements of fiction do you think work the best to actually tell a story? I think one of those things is setting the scene. Um, I try to set the scene for every part of the story where the scene changes because, like I said before, there's no visual cues. And that's something that I get a lot from fiction stories, that I feel like I'm a part of it. And the other thing which a lot of our listeners say as well is that they feel a part of the investigation. I guess taking that sort of and mixing it with a fiction... When you talk about stories, there's and and you know this is storytelling in general. There's gen, there's generally a big focus on character development, and I actually want to just latch onto something that I think you touched on there, which is the listener almost as a character themselves. This is something that I kind of have observed listening to Case File. I feel like as a listener, you're almost um, uh, you're almost kind of in in the story. As like a police observer, you're kind of seeing the story from the police's perspective or maybe from the media's perspective. Um, And then sometimes you actually see it from the protagonist's perspective as well. You're kind of just like this floating blob throughout the story and you kind of get to be everywhere and anywhere um, where the kind of action happens. Yeah, and also some stories work better if you are feeling like a family member or a police officer. So we don't... stick with a formula like that like something I've been reading today was is much more family orientated so it'll probably be a little bit more um, how it affected them throughout rather than one that might be from a police perspective is um, more at the end you get a feeling of the family and how they're dealing with it or the community so yeah changes Oh, good question. Do you drop in clues throughout the episode? Yeah, we do. That's a natural thing too. I don't think it's necessarily deliberately dropping in clues. I think that's just something that um, happens with true crime, that you can look back on a on a story and say, oh, I saw that or, you know, I think that comes naturally with the genre. Do you write the story so that there is a twist at the end? I don't write the story so there is one, but in a lot of crime cases there is a twist so and it doesn't always come at the end but there is a lot of cases where that happens because it's a mystery and whether it's solved or or not there's a twist somewhere along the line so I just wanted to um, ask about something that you mentioned before which was setting the scene when you set the scene in an you know auditory sense, what details are you looking for? Is it you know the weather? Is it the newspapers out the front? Um, is it you know what details of the location? Well, you know how how do you build a picture in somebody's mind? Yeah, that's one of the most important things to me, and I think my love of forensic detail and stuff is probably part of that as well. Setting the scene isn't just about what the street was like or the desert or whatever it can be about the person setting the scene about them so if I can say that person in the morning of the incident had a coffee and did xyz you're you're learning about them as a person so they're sort of 
things that may not be important to a newspaper story, but when you're, you know, telling a story in this in this sort of way, they're the things that are really important in setting that scene. Okay, so I have two questions about that. One is, where do you find that information about, you know, they were having a coffee the morning that they got murdered? So it's kind of the research question. And then the second question is how you choose to include that detail or not. So let's go with the first one. Um, the first one, I'm not telling. <laughs> no, it's it's just... I just, if I get an idea in my head that I want to find something or I want to try and find something out about a situation, I just do whatever I can to find it. So that would be public records, ringing people, you know, it just completely depends. Like reading j- stuff. journalist kind of yeah. journalistic things. Yeah. yeah. And if it's important enough, you know, the answer should be probably be there sure and then so how do you decide whether that's an important detail to include you know did somebody drink coffee on the morning that they were murdered in my mind right now I'm not sure whether that's important or not so (laughs) Uh, it's more about setting the tone in the scene really that sort of thing but say we released a story this week about a arsenic poisoning a woman that um, poisoned at least three or four husbands and so throughout the story you hear about all the meals she makes but you don't know at the time that she's putting stuff in there so that's a sort of more you know different example of that sort of thing those things are really important to the story and and back to the question from sue earlier dropping some clues early in the episode yeah and that was a natural thing because that information is there to read as well you know like that's out there because it was important Anna, you write the stories, but uh, Anonymous, a third party, is actually narrating it. How do you convey all of the information that you know about the case um, and communicate that to somebody else? That's my job. Um, I suppose he is very good at reading and editing and asking. We have a lot of questions back and forth. He knows the case inside and out by the time he narrates it, so that helps. But also I think that's another thing that's been lucky in our team, that we work really well together. And I think we've got quite similar minds like that. So um, I think that's a bit of luck as well. But I, um, we do have a lot of back and forth, like confirming stuff and, yeah. How long does it take from the point in time where you start writing an episode to when it's actually going into production? So the whole research phase. And I might even add on an extra part to that question is how long does it take after it goes in, like what's the post-production phase to when it's released? So... When I talk weeks, it's probably should be longer. For me, anyway, I'm the main writer, so I do have a deadline. We're an independent podcast, so if we don't put an episode out, we don't have anyone really, except for advertisers, to answer to. Um, But we are pretty much a weekly podcast. We do have breaks maybe every three to four weeks, uh, break mid-year and a couple of weeks over Christmas, so pretty much a weekly podcast. But it takes a lot longer than a week to do a show. So for me personally, I have about two and a half weeks to research and write the whole script for um, however long an episode is. And from that point on, it's at least a couple of days for editing between the host and myself. And then that's another day to record because it doesn't take an hour. It can take sometimes eight, 10, 12. And then that goes off. And we do have a compo- two composers. So our producer composers and we have a freelance composer in the States as well. So then the producer gets the script and he actually reads the script. This is probably part of another question. Um, he reads the script and absorbs himself in the story before he hears the um, narration. And he then puts all the music together. And that could take 
I mean, as well as composing another week. And then he's got to produce it and put it through all the things and um, spit it out. So, I mean, it's at least a four or five week process per episode. What's the workflow look like in terms of actually, you know, how many how many episodes do you have or how many stories are you writing at once? Because, you know, if you have a four or five week process, maybe sometimes longer, what you start today won't be out until maybe two months time. And so, how, how do you manage all of that at once and how long does it take and how do you juggle all these stories at once? That's a really good question. I actually get asked that quite a lot. Um, I, at the moment, we're a really small team. If we had a big team and we had, you know, more hours in the day, we would be a couple months ahead. But generally, um, I submit a script and it's on the air three weeks later. But that's because of the amount of work that goes into it, I suppose. And sometimes of the year we're more ahead than others. But I'll be working on a number of scripts at the same time. I also um, have long range stuff. So if I'm working with an invest like police, that takes a long time. So backwards and forwards or family members or people actually involved. So say something that I know will come out in a few months time, I'm working on now, but I only ever write, like literally write the script of one at a time because I need to be only in that space, but I might work on three or four. Do you ever have conflicts of interest or confidentiality around what information can police reveal to you and uh, a family member's sensitive about the information that that you're telling or the story you're telling? That is a really good question. No, we don't, but we're very careful. Like we spend a lot of time and we're, you know, pretty well versed in what we can and can't do. Police in Australia work very differently to the police in the US and a lot of our listeners, like we do do a lot of US cases and they're a lot more forthcoming with um, missing persons cases and stuff, so stuff that's not solved. But everything that we use, unless it's come from the specific source themselves, so they obviously know what's going on, is public information. So the other thing that if anyone hasn't listened to our show, we don't use anything that doesn't add to the story. So we don't delve into the awful gory details of something that might hurt a family member or someone left behind or, you know, quite often um, there's one case that I did that went for five episodes and there was 62 victims and 50 of them are still alive. So I was very careful to think if that was me, how would I want it to be said? You know, like um, that sort of thing. And I think if you can stick with that, it's a pretty good starting point. Do you warn family members or anybody who is affected by the case before you actually go to air? Um, Sometimes. I contact a lot. Um, It usually is something that with a missing persons case, we find that family are really wanting it to happen. They just, you know, really want someone to tell their story and to help get the information out there. With a closed case, a lot of the time we do and we've never come up with anyone saying, please don't tell that case or that story but sometimes if it's just a big Australian case um, like say for example the Peter Falconio case is one of Australia's biggest cases even the court records every single thing about that case is public knowledge Um, we tend to just tell the story from that. Do you see yourself as a journalist or a podcaster? A podcaster. (laughs) Because the reason I ask that question is because it seems to me like a lot of what you actually do is skills that a journalist would employ, you know, research, outreach to police, um, freedom of information requests, reading through court doc, you know, public information, all that kind of stuff. Why do you see yourself still as a podcaster? I think journalism is much more, for, for me, um, newsworthy. So like current, um, telling, you know, something people don't know about yet, 
really we're telling stories of things that have happened in the past and sometimes you know 60 70 years ago um we do do some recent ones but that's a real difference for me apart from the fact that I'm no trained journalist. Do you ever start the process of, you know, investigating a case and researching and realise that it's maybe not story worthy? Not all the time. We have such a huge listener request list. So it's often that. It's often a case that I haven't heard of and it seems okay and we get in. Um, One of the main things for me is if it's just an awful case and I don't see any reason in telling it except for the fact that it hurt a lot of people. So that's something that I would probably get part of the way into the research and think no. Um, The other thing is probably if there's nothing really to keep the listener there. And often we get asked um, by people who are say no of the family or no of a person that was involved in a case and it means a lot to them, but it still needs to keep the listener there. So yeah, it does happen sometimes. Can you tell us about the process of creating that five-part episode? Yeah, so at the beginning, when I read into it, and I knew it was really big, this is the one that had the 62 victims and survivors as well. I imagined it being a two episodes, even if they went for three hours, you know, a couple of episodes. And then I started to learn a lot of the background, speak to a lot of people that were left behind, um, some people who were victims and some other people who were children of victims and stuff like that and realized that it was probably the one of the biggest cases that if this gets solved because it's not not a solved case um would be one of the biggest probably in the world and that really if I was going to do it justice I needed to give every single one of those 62 cases a voice and so rather than bundling them into a year because it went for 10 years I felt that that was the right thing to do so it kind of became a much larger and then we ended up getting a lot of people involved in the case including the cold case investigators um, that did want to be a part of it so we had a lot of interviews and stuff so it just grew I think once I got into it and that was probably the first time for me um, getting into something and it really just going with it as as I was doing it as opposed to planning an episode and yeah just running with it yeah I know you um, have said in the past that the way you write stories for Case File is kind of like writing chapters of a, of a book. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I guess that is for me where I want to find out what happened. So the introduction and when you want to find out about the characters and the conclusion and all of that. And in that sort of respect, I can move stuff around. So that's kind of how I approach it. I suppose that's a part of um, doing storytelling with facts. I guess you kind of need to have some other method to make it much more like a story. So, yeah, that's a big thing for me. Do you ever go on location for your stories and uh, and also for the, the ones that are US-based um, or just overseas or far away? Do you travel uh, to, to actually report on the story and get those details um, of the scene? I have done, but as a general rule, I don't just do everything remote so even if I interview um, people which I do a lot um, I do it from here but yes I have done and it completely changes the story it's a very different type of um, it's much more investigative then but even so that's only to get the story um, not necessarily to seem because we're not an investigative podcast in any way so I would only be using that as a tool to tell the story a bit better. 
What's the business model that sustains Case File? Uh, we don't have a business model. <laughs> but, but you monetize the show, right? Yeah, well... You have, you have ads in the do, show. Yep, we do have ads. And if we didn't have ads, we wouldn't have a podcast. It's the only way um, we can put the amount of time into each episode that we do. But also the main thing is the listeners as well. So, you know, you really do it for the listeners. Um, we do it for ourselves, but you do it for the listeners and you sort of listen to them. Our, from a business model, I mean, we um, try to stay consistent. We've got like a sort of style and we don't really move from that. And yeah, I, I think we just have kind of been lucky as well. Can I ask you about the ads? Casefile approaches their ad reads very differently to how many other podcasts do. Um, a lot of podcasts, they'll slam an ad somewhere in the middle, right in, right after a cliffhanger, coming coming up after the break. You know, you'll find out about blah. Um, but Casefile doesn't. It's end to end. It's an uninterrupted story. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's been a big thing. That's um, an important thing to not break up the story. But also that's um, an important thing in advertising. It's um, so many podcasts do that. It's the way that it's going. Um, I think it's not unusual to listen to American podcasts and hear the mid-rolls that they're called. Um, But we've tried um, to stay true to our listeners and not do that. And yeah, so that's been a probably at a bit of a sacrifice. From what I understand of the podcasting industry in terms of advertising, um, you actually command a higher um, CPM rate if you put the ad in the middle of the episode because people are more likely to listen to it. They're not going to skip through it. They're most engaged when it's kind of right in the middle of the content. So are you giving up, you know, leaving money on the table, I guess, to stay true to the model? Yeah, of course. Why? That's just been the decision that we've made. And as the podcast grows, things might change. Because it's, it's for the listener, right? Like, it's, you don't serve an advertiser. They fund the show and make it possible. But really, there is kind of a, almost like a, a set of ethics, I suppose, that Casefile um, runs by. I, I found that came through quite strongly when I listened to the show. It, there's, you know, um, it, it is very factual. There's kind of no superfluous information. And, you know, you don't interrupt the story. You're very clear about the ads. The ads are tailored to the listeners. So... Why is that so important as an independent podcast to have this kind of set of guidelines and rules? Well, we try to just do what we can for our listeners. Because as I said, if we don't have them, we don't really have a podcast. So um, we just try to make the right decisions um, to keep them on board. But as I said, things change quickly. And the more pressure that's put on a podcast to continually produce the same caliber of content, you have to change things. Um, And we're faced with that too. Do your advertisers actually fund all of the staff that work on Casefile? That's the only money coming in, but it doesn't know. So I think if going into a podcast, you think if you have three ads on an episode, it's going to cover a team, that's probably not correct. I mean, the host of our show only stopped working full time a month ago and we've been going for nearly two years. So it's taken two years of quite a successful show for him to get to a point where he felt comfortable enough um, to do that. So I think it's um, probably a no. Uh, So you all still have jobs or the majority of people still have full-time jobs or did? Did is probably the answer. Yeah. We've got to a point now where the three of us in the management team are on case file full-time. We have a couple of freelancers, but that's very recent. 
yeah, we just had to do the what we could to get it done after hours, yeah. You mentioned the word um, successful podcast in there. So, you know, we've, we've been doing the, uh, running a successful podcast for a few years and only just recently have you guys been able to, or majority of the team, been able to leave full-time work. What does success mean to you? For me personally, it's that our listeners love what we do um, and they keep coming back and listening. That's really the, all that matters, actually, and that we feel that we're doing a good job. Can I ask then, because you've won a bunch of awards, which in some ways is success, and you have a lot of loyal fans, which is in some ways a success, and, you know, advertisers support the show, which is in some ways a success, but is there like a metric that you look at? Like, um, do you look at the download numbers and say, oh, we're getting X amount of, num-, you know, is that... No, we do. We don't focus on it, but we definitely do. Like, we know what our download numbers are, and we know how it's sort of mapped over the last couple of years. That's something that's really important because you see whether you're doing the right thing. You see whether you're, what you're doing is working for your audience, I suppose. So, yeah, we do, we do, but we don't measure our success on that. Can I ask what those numbers are? Um, it changes a lot, but we have about half a million uh, listens per episode. How do you source the advertisers or do they come and find you? A bit of both. Mostly the, um, they come to us. There's, there's agencies that once a podcast hits a certain amount of listens, they're on their radar and they'll come to you and offer you some, some sort of spots and stuff. But um, it's a bit of a mixture. Given that you have such a, um, a huge amount of loyal, dedicated fans and you also have this really great code of ethics, um, have you ever been tempted to break the rules now and then, maybe on case file or create a, uh, a separate show entirely, a spin-off one where you have a little bit more freedom. Yeah, we, we do. We talk about it all the time. When we get, to- when we get time, we're going to do it. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily think it's to break the rules or to like get us not so restricted because we are quite restricted in like our content and where we can go with the story. But um, oh, it's definitely something that we talk about quite a lot. I think it's it's natural that um, you want to deviate and do other things while you're, you know, staying in one, one path. So, Anna, as, uh, after you came on board, um, has the format of the show changed? What have you learned about, you know, different uh, maybe storytelling methods or different formats that some have worked, some haven't? Have you tried different things? The format hasn't changed. So I've been on board for nearly a year now, or about a year. Um, the format's always been the same. It's always been fact-based you know, straight down the line, chronological, that sort of thing. But um, the length has definitely changed. So that probably then brings in a lot more detail, um, drawing the listener in more. We also do, I mean, we, we do use audio. So um, not every episode has audio. It's only if it's relevant to the story or if we think it will add. We don't just put it in there because we can. We do listen to our listeners and we, you know, try stuff out all the time. And if we get quite a lot of feedback from people saying oh I don't really like that seems like a bit of a change we will change that and one of those instances was when a few months ago the host did some voice acting but it was just a natural thing it wasn't something that anyone planned it just happened and I thought it was great because it was so natural and some listeners thought thought it was amazing and then some listeners were like please do not change your format (laughs) so we listened to them and you know we learned from that and you know, maybe it's just that will be that extra show that we do. <laughs> uh, 
Can I take us full circle back to kind of where we started this chat and and ask about the nuts and bolts of actually creating a a narrative based show? Right. Um, we we see a lot of shows that are narrative based in in podcasting. We've got Serial is probably the the pinup show. Um, and a lot of true crime shows, some from Australia, a lot out of America. But I want to ask about like the actual creation process, right? So you've got like a whole bunch of research. Some of it might be printed material that you've um, printed out or requested from a court or Victoria Police or wherever it is. You've got a whole bunch of electronic documents. You've got a whole bunch of conversations that you've had and maybe recordings um, that, you've, that you've done of those conversations and facts and figures and statistics and places and maps and photographs, all that kind of stuff, right? What comes next? Like, do you do you like kind of map out a storyboard with sticky notes, or do you use three by five cards? Do you use a whiteboard? Like, how do you turn all of that collateral into a cohesive story? I definitely do not use a whiteboard. <laughs> I don't. Um, that might be a good idea. I might use that. <laughs> um, I just map it out. I map out exactly how I think I would like to hear the story. But how? Like, not just in your own mind, right? Like, like on the computer or in a notebook. Um, and I might revisit it and, and change it round, or I might just write it, the whole thing, how I think that day, and then change it the next day. Um, it's pretty rare that I would write a whole, like, 15,000-word script and it stays exactly as it is. So it's kind of a lot of looking back on things as well. Um, and that's all part of the process with the host having a read-through too, and it's the same with his scripts or the others. Like, I'll read them and see it for something else and think that things could be moved around. So it's kind of the same thing, but it's, I just do it on the computer. Do you have any software that like works well for that? Or do you literally just like, I'm just trying to understand, like the reason I asked this is um, at OzPod this year, um, Jennifer White spoke about how they created Making Oprah. They literally wrote sticky notes about like all the key points in the plot and put them up on a wall and moved them around and, you know, changed the story and drew arrows and stuff about how like kind of the key plot points and characters move throughout a journey. Um, now, I know you said you write some stuff in a notebook sometimes, or um, but you don't use a whiteboard and that was a very visceral no that I... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, like, are you literally just like writing a script, like a draft of the scripts, or do you actually kind of like storyboard something? I don't storyboard. I just write it. So I might write headings, but um, I just write it and then revisit it. I think if we worked in a team in an office, that would probably work. But also only one person writes a script. So yes, it might be edited or looked at by someone else but it's not really a discussion with anyone else. We work remotely of how that's going to flow. So I can't, that sort of wouldn't work for us, but I can imagine in a group setting, that would be really beneficial. So talk to us about finding a good composer. How do you find them? Um, Do you give them a trial run? How much do they cost? All that kind of stuff. If that's what you you want to do, a really good place to start is by asking people that you know, if they know anyone that composers digital music but there's also freelancing websites where people post um, jobs for certain amounts of money they're a really great place to find people for piecework like that as far as the right fit I think that's a trial and error thing I think um, we were recommended someone and our producer is also a music he composes music as well so that's pretty lucky and I mean our sound producer so they're definitely out there. You have this theory, Anna, that the composer actually tells their own story with with the score. Yeah, he does. So um, Mike, the sound producer, he gets some of the music from the composer. He composes some of the music himself and he 
does a score like a film. So he that's what he used to do for work before he was in film. And when you listen, um, and it was probably a little bit hard to hear, so it depends on what you're listening on, um, you can see that he builds his own story through his sound. So he really focuses on building the tension at the right spots, silent parts. He also changes the pacing if he needs to. So it's kind of the sound of our show is one of the most important things in our storytelling. I think it's not just the script. You said that you studied criminology, but did you also study writing? Uh, No, I studied modules of journalism and I did police studies, Um, but I haven't studied any creative writing or anything. It's just something I've always done, just always written my own stuff, but not for any purpose, just, I mean, I have a purpose now, um, but no. What inspires you? in terms of actually creating these stories? I'm not inspired by any specific author or type of um, fiction books or anything, but I've always loved true crime and I've always watched it. So even um, Agatha Christie and Law and Order and you name it, even as a teenager, I watched it. But for me, it's not anything about the crime itself. It's about the investigation and the figuring out of what happened. That's kind of where my inspiration has always been and kind of is in what I write now. So, of course, the what actually happened is important, especially if you're going to be talking about a trial and why someone um, was sentenced the way that they were. You need to understand what it is that they did. But mostly I'm more inspired by you know, how it was solved or the little things, the tiny little details or pieces of the puzzle that fit together. Do you consider stage direction um, when you're actually writing a story in terms of, you know, how the the host should maybe read something or maybe how the music should build tension or, or, you know, convey some information at particular points? For the host, I do. I put little notes in or I put things in bold or capitals or something. Um, And we often have conversations about certain parts of the episode anyway, but not for the music and composing because, you know, we just let everyone do their job how they would see it. And actually it works so well. I think if I um, or anyone else gave that sort of direction, it would just change what we do. It's really nice to, um, I'm one of, I think I might be the only person on the team except for maybe one freelancer that actually listens to the show the host doesn't ever listen and the producer doesn't ever listen. So I like enjoy listening to how it's all come together. So I have to follow up on that, Anna. The host of the show doesn't listen to the show. I don't think he's ever listened to an episode since we're at nearly number seven. We're at like 70 or something now. Wow. Um, He just doesn't like the sound of his voice. So he's listened to like a little bit if it's come up later on, someone asks a question or he needs to know. Um, and Mike, our producer, would never download and listen to the episode, but he's heard, like, the narrative for, you know, 15 hours or something as he's composing. So, I mean, he listens to the to the narration, but, no, I'm, I'm the only one that gives us that download. You know, the workflow of actually producing the show is, you know, you write it, you work on the, the scripts, um, you, you do the um, narration and stuff, and then it goes to the, the, the composition and the score before it's mastered and then released. So the question was, how accessible is the composer in terms of actually building a, a score for the show uh, and getting the right bits at the right time? I can't really answer that. I mean, I think it's a trust thing, but also, I mean, I I think we're really lucky on our team. We just fit together so well, and I just think he 
does such a brilliant job that there's never no one ever checks it like to think that our host doesn't listen to the show to tick it off before it gets published just shows what a like great job he does so um but I can appreciate that it's hard to find people to bounce those sort of things off so yeah have you developed any insight into the criminal mind I've learned a lot I'm not sure if I've developed any insight but it just has really shown me how complex it is and whether you know the reasons why people do what they do is so vast it's a conversation that could go on for like 10 hours and I think that's yeah that's a big one and that's a one of the big things that a lot of our listeners listen to the show for they enjoy like understanding why people do the things you know really the things that you would never think you would ever do but it's too vast to answer I think I like the subtle sell there, though. you got to go listen to the show and uh, to, to find out. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we don't go through that every episode or anything, but that's a big thing for um, people who enjoy true crime anyway, any true crime. So, Anna, I just want to say thank you for coming along You're and welcome. telling us about how you make this amazing show and, uh, and giving us a peek behind the curtain at all the amazing work you're doing. So thank thanks. you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.